You have fallen into Event Horizon with John Michael Godier. In today's episode, John is joined by Patrick Lukavka. Patrick Lukavka is a Brazilian-Italian planetary scientist and dynamicist at the Kindai University in Japan. He has contributed to various topics in planetary science, and his areas of research include the origin and evolution of the solar system, physics and dynamics of solar system bodies, terrestrial planet formation, and planetary migration. Patrick Lukovka, welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me. Now, Doctor, there's been some talk over the the uh, last few, three or four years, actually, of... Um, strange patterns of movement objects in what seemed to be perturbed orbit in the Oort cloud, which led to a hypothesis about planet nine. But in this case, we're talking about something a little bit different. What differentiates this from the uh, planet nine story? Okay. The first difference is that we are not considering orbital alignments of distant uh, transnational objects or cavebed objects, in particular beyond 150 or around 250 astronomical units, which was the main motive for the Planet 9 hypothesis. So that's the first difference. Our observational constraint is uh, that we, we started with is different. We don't consider this, let's say, strange orbital alignments. And as we discussed in the paper, we mentioned uh, uh, some re- previous studies that uh, the question the validity of these alignments. So in that sense, in my opinion, this is still a matter of debate. Maybe they are real, maybe they are not. They are just observational biases. So in our study, we consider a different observational constraint, which are not in dispute, which are essentially some groups of hyperbolic objects located beyond 50 astronomical units, which I called the distant Kuiper belt. So what we did initially, we analyzed, we identified actually some populations at these distances. For example, this was not the first time we identified such population, but this time we did in a more, more rigorous way. So I, we identified, for example, a prominent population of TNOs, transmission objects or covered objects. I, I, I'm going to use TNOs as a, for abbreviation, covered objects. So a prominent population of TNOs with orbits beyond Neptune's gravitational influence. So in in particular, those that have perihelion distance, which are the closest approach of the orbit to the Sun, beyond about 40 astronomical units. So this was the first population we identified more rigorously. And the second population was a statistically significant population of TNOs with orbital inclinations higher than 45 degrees. And this is because in the current solar system, it's difficult to explain TNOs in the distant Kuiper belt with such high inclinations. So at this time, we argue that there is a, a statistically significant population with such high inclinations, which we call also high I, high inclination TNOs. And the third population, which is actually a subpopulation of those two populations I, I just mentioned, are TNOs with extremely peculiar orbits, 
such for example they appear to be so this some of them appear to be so distant that they seem to be detached from the solar system and i think the most famous member of this subpopulation is sedna object sedna which has a perihelion distance of about 76 AU. It's very distant from Neptune. And the single discovery of these objects already called for revision of our understanding of the outer solar system because the current solar system, the perturbation of the giant planets alone, they cannot explain such a peculiar orbit. But in this paper, we also identified other TNOs with very peculiar orbits in addition to Sedna, we list actually 10 objects, and some of them, they have actually very high orbital inclinations, higher than, for example, 60 degrees. So it's even more difficult to explain such high inclinations in the distant Kuiper Belt. And finally, we also identified a fourth population in the distant Kuiper Belt, which is our, they represent an important group of primordial stable resonant TNOs. So what I, what I uh, mean by that, uh, resonant TNOs are objects that display res mean motion resonance dynamics with Neptune. So for example, maybe the most famous member is Pluto. Pluto is currently in the three, what we call the three to two mean motion resonance with Neptune. So in simple terms, when Neptune completes three orbits, uh, Pluto completes two. So in the distant Kuiper Belt, we identified several stable such resonant TNOs, but they are in they are locked in other resonances, not three to two, other more distant resonance. And it turns out that this population is very important because they are stable. And by stable I mean they, they have been under resonant motion for billions of years. So in that, in, that means that if there is any hypothetical planet be located beyond 50U or 100U, whatever the distance, the perturbations of this planet could destroy the stability of these primordial resonant TNOs. So we identified in, in publishing the paper several of these objects and they are important because they can constrain the maximum approach of any hypothetical planet. Otherwise, these stable populations, they, can be, uh, they could be destroyed. So they are very important. So in this, in this paper, the identification of these stable resonant TNOs allow, allowed us to place a minimum distance that the hypothetical planet should have or in other words, the minimum perihelion, the minimum close, closest approach. It turned out to be for an Earth-like planet, which I mean a planet with mass or size similar to, to Earth, it turned out to be about 200 AU. So that means it, the planet has to be perihelion larger than 200 AU, otherwise these stable present populations, they, they can be destroyed or... And so we, which will be, of course, in conflict with observations. So that's, in summary, that's our observational constraints. We, we, our goal was to try to explain how these four groups of TNOs, they came about. Because the current solar system cannot explain them. It's very, they are very peculiar, very strange in, in that sense. And by the way, if, if I can continue, we actually look at, at the 
literature for especially representative models of solar system or outer solar system formation and Kuiper belt formation that they uh, con do not consider hypernetic plants. And we found that the results of these models, even the representative ones, they cannot explain these populations. For example, they are mutual intrinsic ratios and, and so on. And besides, we, we also actually perform a simulation in to obtain indep independent results. So we, we perform a simulation considering only the current outer solar system. And we confirm that in such configuration or even more slightly different scenarios, including planetary migration, they cannot explain well these observational constraints, these, these populations I just described. So our next step was actually to consider then, so how about if there is a hypothetical planet in a distant orbit that could perhaps explain better these populations. And, 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 and actually, this, the, the model published in this paper now is based on our, actually, a, a previous model, with, which already considered a hypothetical planet published in 2008. It's quite a time ago, but surprisingly, after rereading my own paper, I found that several of the results and constraints we, we put there, they are still valid now. So that, that's the, the summary of the story. So we, we tested a hypothetical planet in the distant orbit. We tested many hypothetical orbits, uh, uh, small, lar medium, large, in terms of size. And we tested different eccentricities to be, uh, let's say, less elongated orbits, more elongated orbits. We tested uh, very low inclination, one, zero, one degree inclination, 30 degree inclination. We also tested several different masses for this hypothetical planet. So we, we, we did a preliminary study to constrain the best combination of orbits and masses that could explain those mysterious populations of PNOs in the distant Kuiper Belt. And then we found that an Earth-like planet with some uh, orbit beyond 200U, perhaps uh, up to 500 or, or up to 800, and on an inclined orbit, could yield the best results. They are not perfect, but they yield the best results that could roughly match the observations constraints I just uh, summarized at the beginning of my uh, description. Now, finding and confirming this potential exoplanet, or I keep saying exoplanet, but it's actually a solar system planet, but finding it, will uh, survey telescopes like the Vera Rubin Observatory that sees first light, I think, next year, will that be of help in trying to nail down and actually um, confirm it? Yes, absolutely. Well, in our model, we have the problem that we cannot pinpoint preferred location in the sky to say, okay, the planet should be located over there. So that's a problem. The second problem is that uh, at the moment we cannot also pinpoint where the planet would be in its orbit. If, let's say, close it, near its closest approach to the Sun or, or, or the opposite side of the orbit uh, uh, near its uh, longest distance, the aphelion. So we cannot pinpoint it. That affects brightness that the planet would have, or more specifically, the upper and visual magnitude, as we measured. So in that case, 
If the orbit is more elongated, more eccentric, which seems to be the case, it's the, the results seems to indicate this is the case, it's more probable, based on Kepler laws, that the orbit, the planet is currently near, orbiting near its aphelion, more distant point in its orbit, than the, the perihelion. In that case, depending on the a mass, if it's 1.5 Earth masses or up to 3, make some other reasonable assumptions, we can estimate the brightness in terms of visual magnitude. And it, it, turn out, it turns out that the planet could be, if it by chance it's near its perihelion, near 200U or 250U or something like that, it could appear as bright as, for example, dwarf planet Aries. So it could appear as a, a relatively bright object, but it's more probable to appear as a typical transemption object with magnitudes of maybe 20, 21 magnitudes or something like that. So in that case, we would need a larger telescope and not also a larger telescope to find a, let's say, fainter point in the sky, but also a wide scale observation. So we, we, we will need to observe the sky, a large areas of the sky as because, um, as I just mentioned, we, we cannot pinpoint, we cannot say there is a perfect region to observe. So basically you, have, you, you would need to cover wider areas of the sky trying to search for kind of uh, relatively, relatively bright TNO, but perhaps quite faint, like 22 or 23 magnitudes is also possible. And in that case, uh, the very Rubin telescope will help a lot because they are going to observe a large huge areas of the sky and they are going to track also such uh, say fainter objects they are like to to pinpoint and by the way the objects should would be uh, moving apparently in the sky very very slowly because of its supposedly large distance but in, in other words it could be found by current technology current tele telescopes maybe but that would require a lot of effort to co cover wider areas of the sky. But the next generation of telescopes like Vera Ruby are like going to improve a lot this search. So I, I hope if the plant is real that it could be found uh, within the next, uh, let's say, two, three years or, or so, a few years from now. I think we're going to find something out there because, like I said, there's been talk of, uh, you know, the, the Planet Nine and this, but also a, maybe possibly a Mars-sized object explaining the Kuiper Cliff, you know, and questions like that. So I think it's going to be really, really important, these um, these survey telescopes, to um, to be able to look for movement, even as tiny as it is. But then again, if you've got computers that can, <laughs> you know, differentiate this stuff, you're, you're not exactly like Clyde Tombaugh, you know, with a blink comparator doing it by eye. You've got, you know, algorithms and things like that that can help you search. So do you think that the discovery will come from that, from a computer? Uh, can I comment a little bit about the cover cliff before answering your question? Well, of course, by all means. Okay, that, uh, that's a very interesting point. Because in 2008, we, when I first uh, came out with this hypothetical idea, actually to explain the cover bell, not the first, I, uh, first time to, to propose a hypothetical plan. This, this comes back for more than 100 years ago. Uh, when I came with the idea to explain the entire cover bell by the perturbations of a hypothetical plan, we also look at this, the Kuiper, the Kuiper cliff problem, which uh, interestingly 
And also intriguingly enough, it's still unsolved. And recently, I haven't seen in recent papers people trying to solve that problem. But we, we actually investigated if a planet could create the Kuiper cliff well. And, and by the way, in the early 2000s, there were a few studies that exactly look at that problem. And they propose, as exactly you mentioned, um, a Mars-sized planet located, let's say, at 60 AU, close enough to the Kuiper cliff, which is uh, at, located at about 50 AU or so. And it turned out that such kind of planets, they probably they don't exist. And that one, that was one of the conclusions we we came in 2008, because. If there were a, a Mars-sized planet at located 60 AU, even if it's uh, on a high inclined orbit in order to have escape detection by uh, observations, because if it was at, if if it had a low inclination, it should have been discovered by now. So it, it must, it should have a high inclination to have escape, or less probably just coincidentally located near the galactic plane, where usually observations they avoid this region. Anyway, from the Dynamical perspective, we found that, the, that such a kind of plant can, probably done, uh, does not exist because although it could create the carbon cliff, at the same time it would destroy the stable resonant TNOs I just told at the beginning of our talk. In particular, 3 to 2, where, for example, Pluto is located, and also 2 to 1 stable resonant populations. They are prominent right now. So if you put Hypothetically, even a low-mass Mars-sized planet at 60U or even 70U, if you will, the long-term perturbation of such a planet is going to destroy the stability of resonant TNOs in the 3 to 2 and 2 to 1 resonance. So because we, we see a permanent population in those locations, it's probably fair to say that we can re rule out the existence of, of such kind of plants. So, the Kuiper cliff is kind of a still open problem. In 2008, we tried to propose that the hypothetical planet, before acquiring its distant orbit, which may apply to the current model, because we didn't discuss how the orbit, how it, the origin of the orbit. But one idea that I just like in the 2000 paper, I'd like to revisit in the near future is, is that this hypothetical planet probably formed in the region where the giant planets formed in the, during the early solar system about 4.5 billion years or so ago or so. So in that case, perhaps several objects, planetary objects with, uh, let's say, tens of the Earth mass, uh, sorry, tens of, yes, tens of the Earth mass or even Earth-like objects, they were scattered around it. So it's like a, a very chaotic phase of the solar system when the planets were forming. So perhaps one of these scattered, gravitationally scattered objects was the, the hypothetical planet. But during this temporary orbit, inter, orbit interacting with the planets, maybe this interaction perturbed the primordial Kuiper belt in a way to create the Kuiper cliff. And actually, this was one of the results we found in 2008. It was possible to create the Kuiper cliff by temporarily planetary body being scattered by, for example, early formed Neptune. So this is this one. This idea is, is around. It's still out there. It could work, but it needs to be re revisited uh, in light of the new observational constraints that I, I discussed in the beginning of our talk, and also 
in light of the new orbits and new preferred orbits and masses for the hypothetical planet as we discuss in the current paper. Okay, I just close my parenthesis about the carbon cliff and your question. Sorry, I forgot your question. Well, I was just asking, do you think that when the search is on and you get some data, I mean, are you going to use computer algorithms and things like that to try to ah, yeah. get past the, you know, the, the very, very slow motion of this object? Ah, yes. Observationally yes. speaking. Yeah. Yes, uh, definitely. I think this um, machine learning and codes and uh, AI stuff, they are going to uh, speed up a lot the search for very slowly moving objects and also to use this data with data obtained by other telescopes like, like database in order to compare the data to see if the same object was observed and so on. So I think that in the next few years, uh, especially when Vera Rubin is observing, getting a lot of data, they are going to re revolutionize our search for such kind of objects. Uh, even if the hypothetical is not discovered within the next few years. I, I'm sure that these uh, surveys with their automatic search and and find uh, algorithms, they are going to find several new strange TNOs out there. Maybe new sadness or 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 even more even or even objects with uh, more surprising orbits that will they are uh, that will puzzle our the theorists and dynamicists like me, myself. Now, there seems to be no real um, handle on just how many objects like, you know, Sedna or something like that could be out there, you know, uh, Pluto-like objects and, you know, trans-Neptunian objects. Could it, could we be looking at uh, like a hundred <laughs> or something like that of these minor planets out there? Do you mean 100 uh, like Sedna? Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, is there is there is there any constraint on the upper end of the population of mm -hmm. of objects like that out there? Um, I mean, is there you know, could we be looking at potentially hundreds of them, or is it probably going to be tens to twenty? You know, maybe we know about half of them right now, and you know, we'll discover the other half. But as far as objects in that class of minor planet, I mean, could there be a bunch of them out there, or is it relatively constrained? Oh, okay. Well, it, of course, it depends on the size or the mass of the minor planet. There are some studies that um, constrain the number of primordial, for example, Earth-like size or Mars-like Mars-sized objects or even Pluto-sized objects uh, during the early solar system. And from the top of my head, for example, Pluto-sized or, as if you will, dwarf planets. The number of uh, primordial ones were probably on the order of thousands, maybe several thousand, but not more than one, uh, more, not more than ten thousand. So there are some studies that try, are more or less finding these these numbers, uh, maybe four thousand or five thousand. So at the current current solar system, we we have discovered only two Pluto-sized dwarf planets, which are uh, Pluto and Aries. There are only two. Uh, so what happened to the other, let's say, 4,000 or more than or 5,000? Probably several of them, they were lost, uh, either by collisions with forming giant planets or they were perhaps several of them, they were gravitationally ejected by Jupiter, so they left the solar system. On the other hand, some of them were captured in more stable orbits in the 
hyperbell or even in the distant hyperbell or even perhaps in the near the Oort cloud at several thousand AU astronomical units. So it's difficult to predict the number of super-sized objects at very distant orbits. But I would not surprise if we future surveys they found if they find uh, let's say tens. I'm, I'm not sure if they find hundreds, but perhaps it, it, it would not be surprising to find tens of Pluto-sized dwarf planets out there in very distant orbits or very inclined orbits and, and, and so on. It's very exciting to think about. And at the same time, on the same, in the, on the same token, for example, the Mars-sized objects, they were less in numbers during the early system. So if they are, exist out there, they probably would exist in, le in smaller numbers, uh, maybe uh, tens, or maybe ten or, or less than that. It's difficult to predict. So at the same time, we, we, we can mention about, uh, we can also discuss about Earth-sized objects. So if there were tens of them, or maybe hundred or something like that, during the solar system, several of them were lost and so on. So in that case, we could say that only one survived in the our solar system. And that's exactly the hypothetical plan. That's the idea that, that perhaps one of these Earth-sized objects which existed in the early solar system only one survived in the distant couple belt. Perhaps, of course, it's possible that two or three survived, but in our working scenario, the idea is that is that just one could have survived in a stable one. Now, about that. Now, this object could be Earth-sized, well, a little bit more massive, of course, but could this be the solar system's super-Earth? the missing super-Earth that we see so commonly with other star systems that we don't have. Could this have been that? I mean, it, and moved out to a much further orbit at this point. Uh, well, it depends on how we define super-Earth. So in the li literature, in particular exoplanet literature, uh, I realized that even planets with two or three times the mass of the Earth, they are, they are collectively classified as super-Earths. I am more a solar system researcher, so in my view, a super-Earth is like a five Earth masses or more, which is also quite common in the exoplanetary uh, database. But, okay, if let's suppose that the hypothetical planet, as we propose in the paper, is uh, three Earth masses. In that case, depending on how you define you, you could say that it would be on, at the lower end of a super-Earth and in that case, it, it could be considered the missing super-Earth of the solar system. But I personally, I, I think that the super-Earth should be uh, an object with mass more massive than Earth, the five Earth masses, which is actually one of this kind of, for example, massive objects are very commonly obtained in models that, for example, try to explain the formation of Uranus or Neptune. So this kind of what we call planetary embryos, like five Earth masses, four, six, or something like that, they were probably the the objects that ultimately, by some really large collisions, they formed essentially Neptune and, and Uranus. But that's my personal view, maybe because I'm influenced by solar system research. Is it possible now, with you get when you get an object that distant, which I think you said a perihelion of 200 AU, something like that, something that distant? Could it be a capture just as easily as it could have 
you know, be a native of our uh, star system. Yes, concerning the origin of the orbit of this uh, putative planet. Yes, one idea, as I mentioned before, is that it was scattered out and by some chance, dynamic interactions with other body, other planetary bodies and so on, it, it acquired a stable orbit. The other possibility, as, as, as you mentioned, it could have been, maybe it was captured by, say, a system which passed close to the solar system during the early ages of the solar system, and it, it was fortuitously captured. It, it's possible. Perhaps it, it's a very, it's a low probability, low probability event, although the scenario of scattering from the giant planet formation region to the outside is also probably a low probability event. So in that case, it's difficult to say uh, which one is more probable. But anyway, uh, yes, I think it's, it's, it's a possibility that the planet could have been captured from outside the solar system. Although we would need to, to check in more detail the probability, perhaps only a few percent. And then later, also we need to follow to see the stability of such orbit, because as uh, the solar system formed, it, it experienced many passing stars later uh, during its in particular first billion years. So we would need to investigate if after capture such kind of planet would stay on a relatively stable orbit, or it could, or yeah, or if there is a chance that it could be stripped off from the solar system by the same, by similar mechanisms as passing stars and, and galactic tides and so on. But it, yes, I, I believe it's, it's a possibility. Although personally, uh, I'm a, I, I, I think that the scattering from Janpa information region is it's an interesting hypothesis because, as I mentioned before, we have more constraints on the, the numbers of objects that existed there so it's probably a little bit more a little bit more uh, maybe easier to investigate viability of this scenario because we can simulate several possibilities and uh, several planetary bodies and and, and, and then look, investigate the dynamic evolution of such systems and, and so on on the other hand the capture scenario probably is is less is less constrained so in that case, we, I think we, we know less about the environment that the solar system experienced during its first, uh, during its infancy, during the first million years. So it's difficult because several models, they uh, assume that our solar system formed in a very dense star cluster, but other models, they assume some different environments. So depending how you uh, assume the environment of the passing, the passing stars and galactic tide and also the influence of molecular clouds, they, they can produce quite different results. So in that case, it would alter the probability of capture and I suppose also the probability of stripping of capture objects after the capture. Say there is this planet, this let's say it exists, and we find it. One of the biggest surprises of, of my, my time, you know, having an interest in astronomy, which is almost 40 years now, is that Pluto turned out to be really dynamic and interesting. <laughs> Way more than we thought. We used to think yes. of it as an ice ball that, you know, its atmosphere would freeze out and, you know, during 
various times of, of its orbit. And we didn't realize that such an object can be so dynamic. So if we were able to go out and look at, say, a two-Earth mass planet out there, uh, it's going to be full of surprises, I would bet, right? Yes, I believe so. As you said, Pluto... I also had this, this uh, imagination. I also imagined Pluto as just a, maybe with all respect to the dark planet, like a, a boring, icy ball in the very distant and cold or everything's dark and so on. But New Horizons mission changed our view completely. Now we know that Pluto is a very interesting, very dynamic place, and and also even. It has several geological properties similar to Earth, so it was really, uh, really interesting to see the pictures and, and the results that still are being discussed. Concerning the Earth-like planet, so if it has a, a two Earth masses, I'm sure that it will reveal, if it exists, it will reveal very interesting physical properties, perhaps beyond our imagination. Uh, I try to imagine that. A two Earth mass object, first, is going to have probably a very prominent internal energy source, uh, for example, by uh, the decay of radioactive elements, just as we have in our planet. So it's going, it's probably going to have a very important internal energy source. And in that case, we could imagine, I know it's a little bit speculative, and we don't discuss this in the paper. So that's just a disclaimer. <laughs> so in that case, we can imagine that the planet would have subsurface oceans. It's almost sure with such internal energy. I even speculate that perhaps because of such a proper, such a internal energy, perhaps the planet could have very active interactions between the subsurface and even the surface. Perhaps it could have more dynamical geological features compared to Pluto. I would not be surprised if it could even have a tenuous atmosphere, and and even from the perspective, from the extraterrestrial life perspective, maybe it could even have contain some, I, I don't know, primitive organisms in its ocean and so on. So it could be even interesting in that regard. So in that sense, it's it would be like an Earth-like. Not only because of similarity of size of mass with Earth, but also because of similarities in terms of ge geological properties and dynamics of uh, subsurface and surface. Of course, having a, a very distant orbit would uh, not imply an Earth-like planet, just like as we know here, with, uh, with nice temperatures and so on. The planet would probably have minus 200, I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure, if, but... Because of the interaction of the surface, it changed a little bit the subject, the, the temperatures. But anyway, we could imagine minus 230 or minus 220 degrees Celsius. It, it would be a very cold uh, war, in, in, and the surface would be basically uh, an extreme version of Pluto with, with lots of different, not only water, but different ices uh, frozen on the surface and so on. And, and probably mixed with important fractions of rock, at, uh, on the other hand. Because if this object formed near the region where the giant ants formed, we could expect that 
there was there was a contribution of uh, rock com components, not only ice, not only like water or met methane, mono um, carbon monoxide oxygen, not only that, but also some different substances, uh, organics, and probably lots of different rocks mix. But it would be a very, of course, surface frozen world. On the other hand, if the surface would be very active, we could expect perhaps some cryovolcanoes and, and also an extreme version of uh, um, satellite Europa. We would probably have lots of stripes and and maybe water, uh, water or whatever, trying to interact with the surface from the subsurface. So it, it, I know it's speculative, but uh, on the, at the same time, it's perhaps not so not so far from what would be in, in reality if the planet exists. It would be a very interesting Earth-like, maybe an active, uh, icy, rocky Earth-like planet out there. It would uh, give us lots of hints about not only the physical properties, but also about the formation of the corvette, the formation of the solar system, because we, we would we would need to understand also how it got there, how it acquired such a, an orbit. Yes, uh, it would be very interesting to to see uh, if 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 it's found in the near future. It could turn out very easily that this and the other Kuiper Belt objects, because, you know, radioactive decay can keep, you know, an object like that warm, especially when we're talking about two Earth masses out that far, that, you know, not only do you have that, but you also have the organic chemistry out there that we see in, in cometary material, you know, carbonaceous chondrites and things like that. And that, yeah, it's, it's such a thing could be just as good as Europa <laughs> or Enceladus as far as speculating about the potential for for biology because you certainly have what apparently is liquid water but what 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 interests me about that is that you know most of the oceanic environments that we think exist in the solar system are those kinds of places ice shell moons and maybe this is an ice shell planet and that maybe that's the rule of the universe and that you know the situation of earth and the habitable zone and all that business is actually not where you would want to look <laughs> for space whales or something like that, and that that these these ice shells are, are much more interesting, and it's all radioactive decay that's that's causing it, you know, in the cores of these planets. I find that fascinating. I mean, does that does that fascinate you as well? Yes, yes, definitely. It's uh, it's fascinating. It's very interesting to to imagine that not only the geochemistry and, and lots of probably different, not only the phenomena we know happening on Earth and, and Mars and the trans, uh, terrestrial planets, but also different different features and properties that, that could be also unique to such uh, worlds. And at the same time, it's very interesting to, to think that if you look at the surf, if you imagine the surface of such moons or even such hypothetical objects, it probably could, it, it would be like, uh, like frozen, not, not so probably not so prone to, to life, but it, if you just look a little bit within the surf, below the surface, uh, we, perhaps it could be a, a fantastic world of some microorganism or even more complex life if the conditions uh, were more favorable. Concerning the hypothetical planet, if, you, if, you, if we found 
we find uh, such an object, uh, it would be, I think, it's a very interesting target for even space exploration in order to find out not only the, the geological, geological features or the geochemistry and even organic formation and so on, but, but also look at the subsurface, right, to try right, to see what kind of environment we, we would find there. And I, I think it would also give us a lot of hints about the conditions and environments that could uh, favor the formation at least of the building blocks of life. That would be very interesting. It came to my mind also that I'm not familiar with the research, but there are some researchers also discussing the habitability of floating planets. So, so basically, it's uh, probably it's a, a similar uh, mechanism. So you, you you look at the subsurface and, and try to see if there is some uh, good conditions there for interesting chemistry or interesting exobiology. It's it's really fascinating and I hope to to be alive to witness such kind of uh, discoveries, uh, even if it's not a hypothetical planet, at least in our solar system. There are lots of interesting places still to, to look at. My last question for you today is this, and this is, this is, this may even be more speculative than life, but not in a certain way. Volcanism in the outer solar system. Could a, an Earth mass or two Earth mass planet like that be volcanically active? That's a good question. My, again, it's a speculation, but my guess based on what we know from our solar system is that we would at least see cryovolcanoes, maybe a lot of them quite active. But I, perhaps it's not so far-fetched to think about even volcanoes similar to, uh, to what we see on the Earth or, or perhaps uh, in, in the satellite uh, Io, a different kind of uh, volcanoes, depending on the magnitude of the, the interactions in, uh, in the subsurface and also, of course, the the magnitude of the internal energy in such a large uh, planet. So perhaps even different, not only cryovolcanoes, but all different volcanoes could be active. Uh, I, I, I don't see why this would be impossible, <laughs> but that would be very exciting to, to see if it's real. All right, Doctor, thank you for joining us today, and I will be watching your papers intently, and I hope you'll join us again, and I wish you good luck, and I look forward to the search for this new potential planet. Yes, thank you very much for inviting me again, and it was a pleasure to talk to you.